and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Lu Nguyen, a college student and the co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Melanie Reed, Associate Dean of Faculty and Professor of Law at Lincoln Memorial University Duncan School of Law. We will discuss her article, A CSI Story, The Past, Present, and Future of Crime Scene Collection and What Litigators Need to Know in the Wake Forest Journal of Law and Policy. Welcome, Professor Reed. Thank you for having me. So let's begin by talking about why did you write this article and what's the major arguments within your paper? Well, I originally had been asked to teach a class to police officers at the National Forensic Academy um, School in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, at the Law Enforcement Innovation Center. They take a 10-week course of uh, forensic science, and they wanted to uh, also learn a little bit about trial advocacy and, or testifying at trial um, as a crime scene investigator. And what I noticed when I met with um, law enforcement that collect evidence, um, they seem to really um, have very little guidance from local police departments or from their local prosecutors as to specific protocols, as to how they should collect evidence or how they should testify about what they've learned about. And so that kind of got me thinking, wow, I think I really need to look further into this and do some research as to how this whole idea of crime scene collection has evolved and is there any kind of you know magic protocol that has to be done and plus with the interest in you know the CSI shows on TV and things like that I kind of wanted to see if you know reality has any bearing on on what we see on TV and of course there's a huge disconnect there so that kind of got me thinking about um, writing this this paper. So can you talk a little bit about crime scene investigators, what they look like in the real world? Well, crime scene investigators, what I've learned are it's very it's varied. Um, you know, a lot of little smaller police departments really don't have um, the the resources to have like this team of CSIs that go in every time um, to collect evidence at crime scenes. So what we see is really, um, you know, police that are first responders sometimes have the job of preserving the scene, collecting um, evidence from the scene. Um, and so really it's, oh, there's a lot of on the job training. And of course, in bigger police departments and of course, um, you know, like the FBI, they have specific teams that are dedicated to crime scene collection. But really, it depends on the particular police department. And again, since there's really not much uh, uniformity, it really depends on what kind of training they give their particular crime scene investigators as far as um, what they're going to collect, how they're going to collect it, how many photographs they're going to take. Are they going to do diagrams? Are they going to lift fingerprints, things like that? There's a lot of discretion in the field. So let's talk about the history of the field, particularly uh, the evolution of crime scene management. Uh, in your paper, you talk a little bit about what it looked like in the 19th century, bringing up the case of uh, the 1840 prosecu 
prosecution of Richard Gold. Can you expand on what crime scene investigation looked like from the 1800s throughout the 19th century? Yeah, what I wanted to look at is is when did forensic science become um, popular or accepted um, as far as far as being a law enforcement tool. So I started looking and doing some uh, doing some historical research and started seeing in in for example in England, like you mentioned, the Richard Gould case in 1840. Really, what would happen is. Um, you know, uh, police would arrive. There was on that particular case, there were two surgeons that came. Um, and essentially they were just witnesses to show what the crime scene looked like. So he was, um, murdered in his house. He lived alone. He had been tied up with, uh, some rope beaten badly. And so they really, obviously there wasn't any kind of DNA, um, testing back then because DNA really wasn't on the scene until about 1987. Um, So they really didn't collect much evidence. They could just really describe the scene and um, were able to say that the killer used a chisel and a blunt round, round object to strike the victim. They, the surgeons could tell how long ago perhaps the body had been warm and when this crime could have occurred. But back then, they, they didn't test for latent fingerprints or, um, you know, check, investigate bloodstain patterns or really do anything of that nature. So really, people that were on the scene at the time really just were used um, as eyewitnesses to what the scene looked like. And then they really had to use circumstantial evidence along with other people that could supply the motive. And in the Richard Gold case, they had a, uh, a a buddy of the defendant to say that he was really um, hard up for money at the time, and he had been seen uh, later that day in bloodstained clothes, and they had found some coins hidden um, in his bedroom. So really, at the time, there wasn't really any forensic science um, around, and so you could see that there was a lot of times where people, you know, could be uh, considered ev- uh, innocent, but yet were found um, guilty based on solely murder and what was uh, motive and what was seen um, by the by the policemen at the time of the at, at the time they found the body. So really, we didn't see much forensic science until fingerprints came around, and that was around the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. So now let's move forward to a relatively more recent case where there are these forensic science uh, techniques, but there are a whole host of mistakes. In your paper, you spent some time talking about the 1994 O.J. Simpson case. Can you expand on that a little bit here? Yes. The reason why I picked O.J. Simpson is because there's such a plethora of information about what happened during that investigation and during that trial. So, what uh, Barry Sheck uh, had, because he he was one of the ones, um, and Effley Bailey were the two that really um, did a lot of cross-examination of the crime scene investigator, criminalist, as they called him, Dennis Fung, and Officer Risk, who was the first police officer on the scene. But what they had that most defense attorneys don't have is they had a lot of media coverage at the time that uh, 
Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Sensom's bodies were found. So it's a real fascinating case to see how they used all this extra information to create phenomenal cross-examinations of the crime scene investigators. And so what I wanted to do was kind of to point out to defense attorneys ways that um, they can take a look at what CSIs have collected and attack it in, in cross-examination. And so that's what I did. And there was a more recent case uh, in Italy that had some of these same uh, mistakes, the Amanda Knox case. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Amanda Knox was... Um, she was accused of murdering her roommate in Italy, and they had a very similar um, issue issue there in the sense that the crime scene had really been contaminated very early on. Um, one of the biggest issues that you that that a lot of defense attorneys will attack is the preservation of the crime scene itself. So both in the case of O.J. Simpson and the Amanda Knox case, there were a lot of law enforcement that were walking around in the uh, stepping basically on evidence, and that can create a problem of contamination. So it was really effective, for example, for the O.J. Simpson's defense team to continually hammer to the jury, you know, that the evidence was contaminated, compromised, and corrupted. And they were able to compare, for example, like the LAPD protocol on how to collect evidence and compare it to what was done on the scene to make the criminalist, Dennis Fung, look like he had really screwed up because he, um, they did not arrive on the scene until 10 hours after the body had been found. So several police had been walking around the scene. They covered Nicole Brown Simpson's body with a blanket that they had found inside the house. And therefore they could argue that the blanket had cross contaminated the body and contained um, secondary transfer of trace evidence of perhaps OJ's DNA from the blanket inside her house onto her body. Um, and so those kinds of things, it's easier to find the information in the OJ Simpson case because we have the exact transcript in which the defense basically attacked the fact that it was improperly, the scene was improperly preserved. The criminalists arrived on the scene later. They were able to show that the photograph, that photographs taken before they arrived showed that pieces of evidence had been moved by the time that the, the criminalists had arrived there. And in the Amanda Knox case, we don't have as much because obviously that was an Italian trial and they don't have jury trials. They're more um, reviewed by the, the judges there, but they had the same exact issues. And again, a lot of this goes back to this idea of we need uniform guidelines for these uh, crime scene investigators. So we have, we have a base in which we can compare what they did to what the basic protocol should be. So can you expand a little bit on uniform guidelines and what that should look like? Well, you know, it's interesting because when I talk to, um, you know, law enforcement that's involved in crime scene collection, I've always asked them, 
could you give me the Bible for crime scene collection and preservation of evidence or how you collect fingerprints or um, track impressions or video record or photograph a crime scene or create sketches? And there is really no, there's not one particular source where everybody goes to. And so I think that that's, um, that's the problem with this idea of, of uniformity, because some people will focus on a particular book, a crime scene investigation book by Barry Shea, uh, Fisher or Richard Safferstein, or or they'll or, or they'll have taken like a criminal just have a criminal justice background in college, and they subscribe to a particular um, method of crime scene collection. But there's just really not one source, and so there's some obvious things that, that they all will agree upon. Um, you know, obviously you should be wearing gloves on the scene. Obviously you should be having booty, you wear booties on your feet or eyewear. And so, um, but nobody has ever gotten together and had one group discuss creating uniform guidelines that um, CSIs should be following. And to that end, it is a little difficult to say there should be only one way because of the fact that crime scenes do vary. So obviously if there was weather concerns or there's public safety um, issues that they have to rush the way that they collect the evidence, or maybe it's the nature of the crime. So you, you're working on a, a burglary case, you might not be taking as many fingerprints or collecting as much evidence as say as if it was a murder case. But a lot of it, I notice, really has to do with the discretion of the CSI themselves. Am I going to collect this evidence? Am I going to cut out this piece of carpet and take it back to, to determine if there's um, you know, DNA on this or um, if there's a lot of trash that's located behind the, the house? Do I collect all of it? Do I collect some of it? And so there's a lot of judgment calls that, that are also involved on the scene that has to be taken into account. But that said, I still believe that I think that just like with all the different forensic science, the, the fingerprints, the, the examination of uh, tire track impressions or bloodstain patterns, things of that nature, the National Academy of Sciences has come out saying we really need a, a lot more um, uniformity and guidelines in those forensic sciences, we probably should be doing the same thing when it comes to crime scene collection. So within your paper, you talk about improving uh, the discovery process when it comes to uh, crime scenes and uh, criminal trials. How should that be approached? Well, I think a lot of times, first of all, I don't think... Um, most lawyers, unless they have some sort of criminal justice background, really are familiar with crime scene evidence collection, preservation of evidence, um, and what CSIs actually do in the field. And therefore, I think they take a scattershot approach um, at trial when they cross-examine um, CSIs on the stand, and maybe at best... Um, ask a few questions to kind of suggest to the jury that there was some sloppy police work that was done on the scene. So I, I think what might be a good idea is to have uh, a prosecutors connect with CSIs prior to trial 
to find out whether there were any kind of deviations from their police department's protocol when it involves crime scene collection. That way, that could give the heads up to the defense as far as whether there's something there that they need to explore. Because at this point in time, you know, they're not familiar with crime scene collection techniques. And we don't have in normal cases this OJ dream team that has, you know, a year plus to go over the, the, the evidence and have the benefit of a, a media videotaping the CSI's every movement. So I think it would it, it would be worthwhile to have prosecutors make that connection because then that also establishes a better relationship between prosecutors and the CSIs to see what exactly was going on at the crime scene at the time, how the evidence was preserved and collected, and they can learn a little bit more about that. And then if there really wasn't any kind of deviation between what was done and the typical protocol that's demanded by the police department, then that's maybe not something that the the defense needs to spend time um, on the trial. So I think that would kind of be of a benefit to all players involved. And in regards to trials, what are the responsibilities of crime scene investigators when they get up on the stand? And even prior to the beginning of the case, what should the responsibilities of those uh, professionals be? I think they need to really, um, they really need to be sure that they feel like they're properly trained. Um, and if there is some sort of on the job training, that there is a supervisor uh, at hand that can help them and assist them in learning how to do this. I think some of the concerns really revolve around um, the time pressure situations that there are on CSIs at the time that they are called to a crime scene, because usually it's pretty chaotic. It could be in the middle of the night. It could be hectic. Um, and if you're not properly trained, you know, it, it could be that you, you're, you miss certain, uh, certain items or um, do improper sketches or diagrams or improper collection. I mean, I know even at the, at the OJ, in the OJ case, Dennis Fung was a, uh, a well-known criminalist, been there for many years, um, but mistakes, you know, mistakes were made. And, and even evidence, understanding appropriate evidence collection, that blood stains should be placed in uh, paper bags rather than plastic bags because plastic can uh, contaminate the evidence. I mean, simple things like that to make sure your CSIs are properly trained uh, is very, very important. So let's talk a little bit about the credibility of crime scene investigators. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but the show CSI kind of presents a different kind of view of uh, crime scene investigators. So what should crime scene investigators make known to juries and courts before they testify based on their uh, credibility? Well, I think the CSI effect has definitely hurt uh, actual crime scene investigators, because I think juries expect that they're going to find fingerprints and DNA evidence every time. And I think that CSIs need to be trained to be able to explain to the jury, you know, in reality, it's very difficult to get a fingerprint off a weapon or, um, 
you know, it, DNA collection varies depending depending on the weather, whether it's an outside crime scene, inside crime scene, things like that. But, you know, one of the biggest things that really I found in speaking to um, police that are and CSIs is that there really is not a lot of discussion and preparation with prosecutors prior to trial. And sometimes CSIs aren't even asked to testify at a criminal trial because evidence can be introduced using like the case agent if he was at the scene or he becomes familiar with the CSI's notes and is able to admit the evidence through the case agent. So what I think we need to do is start appreciating the job of of the CSI's a little bit more and putting them into the trial team and listen to what they have to say, because I think we miss out on on learning important details of the crime scene, the importance of evidence. Why did you photograph this? What is this? What what photos would you introduce at trial? What were some of the weaknesses in the evidence collection at the time? And I think those are the only things that the CSIs that were on the scene that did this can actually uh, talk about with the prosecutors. And uh, I just noticed there really isn't enough communication. And I think that that will really bolster their credibility on the stand if they're properly prepared by the prosecutors. And what's the particular uh, responsibilities of prosecutors in regards to crime scene investigators within a criminal trial? What should be their responsibilities and what are they right now? I think prosecutors really need to try to work on um, law enforcement relations. And I think a lot of times uh, law enforcement feels like they're just brought in at the last minute um, and their voice hasn't been heard. And so I think prosecutors really need to try to make an effort to make CSIs and law enforcement part of that team and properly prepare them. And also learn a little bit more about evidence collection and preservation. So they are just as familiar with the police department's protocols as the defense, because we need to prepare law enforcement um, as a prosecutor for cross-examination. And I think that they're going to strengthen their government's case if prosecutors take more time to talk to the CSIs prior to prior to trial. And for defense attorneys, what should they know about this entire process? What what do they know right now and what should they be knowing in the future? Well, I think that the, the most important would be to, in, in any case, to first ask for um, the CSI's police department protocols. Because I don't think a lot of, unfortunately, I think a lot of um, Police departments create vague protocols on purpose, (laughs) but um, I think that it's important to learn about the CSI's training and the protocols that they're supposed to follow because that's the best way to compare it to what was done in this particular case and ask for the field reports, ask for the particular sketches, maps, diagrams, photographs, you know, what was, what fingerprints were taken, blood stain, um, patterns, shooting incident reconstruction, whatever the case may be, try to get all that information and compare it to the particular protocols. That's going to be your strongest um, cross-examination, 
questions other than the standard sloppy police work questions that the defense usually do. But I think that would be, I think that's really powerful because again, that was one of the strongest um, points that the defense had in the OJ Simpson case was continually going back to the mantra that the evidence was contaminated, compromised, and corrupted. So I think that that um, is really strong, powerful points in front of the jury. And for the big question, why, in your opinion, does all of this matter? I think because, you know, I just keep, I, I hear a lot about, especially after that report came out in 2009 of the National Academy of Sciences, saying that expert witnesses are overstating um, you know, matches that they find from bite marks or blood spatter, or fingerprint matches or hair, things like that. And they keep focusing on the forensic science. And I think that's important. But really, other than watching, you know, CSI on TV, we really haven't scratched the surface about well, what about on the front end? How is this stuff collected? And I think we're, I think everybody in the, on the, in the, criminal justice system is kind of missing the boat, whether that be prosecutors or defense attorneys, in kind of getting an understanding of what happens as soon as a crime occurs. There's somebody on the front line that is trying to do their job. And we need to understand that a little bit more so we can be able to identify any kind of issues that might have popped up and, and show that to the jury at trial. And for my final question, what should lawyers, judges, and investigative agencies take away from your paper? I think that um, I would hope that what I would what I would love to accomplish is first of all uh, increased communication between prosecutors and CSIs, particularly before trial, as they're conducting a trial strategy. And I would hope that I'm 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 trying to. Um, push better communication between prosecutors and defense when there are issues of crime scene collection um, at the scene by requesting that um, they reveal these things to defense in, in discovery. And lastly, I just kind of want everybody to kind of have an appreciation of how far we've come in such a short time. I mean, if you see in 1840, we had we didn't have any of these forensic science um, techniques that we have today. So we've really come a long way in just, you know, a very short time. And I think that crime scene collection is still evolving. And so um, if anything, I'd love to shed a little bit of light of what's gone on in the past. And hopefully in the future, we, we can improve these methods. Well, thank you very much, Professor Reed, for coming on the podcast to talk about your work. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take you directly to Scotland Yard, where we'll be joining that famous detective Sherlock Bones. We'll be looking for clues as to why Satan is tearing up homes today across the land. And now let's join Sherlock Bones. <laughs> oh, pip pip, chitty oh, my friends. How are you today? Sherlock Bones here. 
Yes, hello, Mrs. America. How are you? Fine. How are you? Oh, I'm just fine. You know something, Mr. America? I've been put on a very important assignment from Scotland Lord here to find out exactly some of the devices Satan is using to, well, attack homes today. Yes, yes, and I'd like to look around here. Uh, why don't you look around where you're at, and let's see if we can find some of these important clues, okay? Clues? Yes, clues. K-L-U-E-S is clues. C, all yes, right. Yes, yes. You look over there, and I'll look over here. Good idea. Yes, yes, yes. I'll just move away here for a second so I can find any clues. Have you found any clues, Mr. America? No, not yet. No clues. Oh, my George, i got a clue here. Look at this. i got a clue right here. Oh, what'd you find? Oh, look, just read that right now. Astrology. Oh, yes, yes. Pip, pip. Oh, yes, how about that? You know, Mr. America, many people, well, they start reading the horoscope column in the newspaper, and they get hooked on it. Yes, they find there are hundreds of books and magazines about the effects of stars and planets on their own lives. And do you realize, Mrs. America, there are even horoscopes for pets? Oh. oh, oh, no, 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 no. Yes, this is a trick of the devil. Astrology is simply an open door to demon power. Oh, no, I, I certainly hope someone listening to this today doesn't, isn't indulging in, in astrology. So yes, God wants you to live by faith. That's yes. right. Amen. Look around there so we can find some more clues, if you don't mind. Okay. Okay, anything else? Oh, look, look over there, Mr. America. There's a couple of bars of soaps. Soap? Oh, yes, soap operas. Afternoon soap operas, yes. Oh, oh no, oh, no, oh, no, Mr. America. Right over there beside the soap, it happens to be a reel of... Let me look at it real close. Let me examine it with my magnifying gloss. Yes, yes. Oh, no. It says X-rated movies, R-rated movies, and oh. filthy movies. Oh, no, this... This roll of this reel of film is is filthy movies, Mrs. America. Yes, and over there, look over there, look over there on the table. You see that pile of forty-five records? Yeah. Yes, it's all rock and roll or worldly music. Uh oh. Oh no. Yes. And do you realize, Mrs. America, that thousands who call themselves Christians are trapped by these instruments of Satan? Uh. Yes, they hum songs glorifying drunkenness, and they sing songs that well that that condemn Christianity. Yes, and they bring movies based on sex, gambling, and crime into their living rooms. Oh, this is terrible, Mrs. America. Why, some of them even watch programs day after day about adultery, hatred, drugs, and perversion. You know what, Mrs. America? A mind filled with garbage like this is only an entry point for Satan's power. That's right. Oh, no, how terrible. Oh, no. And look over there, Mrs. America. I see another... There's a, there's a sign over there. Do you read what that sign says? Oh, depression. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, you know something, Mr. America? If no other weapon seems to work, the devil often attacks in this way. Oh, I say, do you, do, do, do you sometimes feel like well, you, you're totally discouraged? Almost like giving up for no apparent reason at all? Not me. Oh, not me either, but there might be some people listening who, who maybe feel that once in a while. Have you ever been so down you felt like life wasn't worthy to live? Well, I tell you something, Mr. America. I feel that suicide is a demon spirit, and it troubles a great many people today. Yes, and people who, who are troubled by demonic spirits like that to commit suicide, well, they often sometimes do feel that life isn't worth living. But you know something? The Bible tells us, yes, that, that Satan is as a roaring lion seeking about whom he may devour. And Jesus even said that the Satan himself would, well, he would desire to have you so that he might sift you as wheat. Ah, but you know something, Mrs. America? The Bible says the devil cannot stand against the power of God. So I know, boys and girls, as we pray, as we believe together, the Lord will bring freedom to people and to loved ones who want to be free and delivered from Satan's power. Amen. Yes, Miss America, Sherlock Bones definitely believes it. Well, if we obey God's word that says resist the devil, the devil will flee from us. Amen. Amen. That's very true. Well, I've got to go back to Scotland Lard to file my report. As we found several devices today that have, well, not have, but are being used by Satan to tear up and to destroy the homes across the land today. So, pip-pip, chitty goodbye. 
Sílaga. Sí,